Sorry about that. Good morning. Hey, if you have a copy of God's Word today, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1. But Matthew chapter 1, and I'm just going to read the first few verses of this. Just a few weeks ago, uh, we were in Titus chapter 3, and uh, Tyler Groves was preaching, and he said, you need to avoid controversy as, when it comes to genealogies, okay? Um, and today, we're going to dive into a genealogy that's not controversial, except for that almost all of the women mentioned in this story are PG-13 kind of stories, okay? So, uh, but I know that most of you probably watch things that are PG-13, so we can handle the stories that are included in this genealogy. We're not going to avoid it because it, it, and it would be tempting to kind of skip over the list of names that maybe some of us can't perhaps uh, pronounce, myself included. But we're going to attempt pronouncing the first few names in, in verses 1 through 3 and then ask the Lord to speak to us today. He'd speak to us through the Scriptures. So with anticipation in our hearts and our minds attentive to His Word, let's ask the Lord to speak to us through this, the genealogy of Jesus. Starting in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. This is the word of the Lord. Say it together. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this, your word, and I pray that as we consider who was included in this great resume of faith, of your redemption. I pray that it would speak to our own stories. That those who feel afraid to even show up in this room today, maybe it took great courage for them to just show up among your people today. I pray that you'd speak comfort to them and life and redemption. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. As I already mentioned, I think it's tempting sometimes to skip over gene genealogies in the Bibles. In the Bible, because you can't pronounce the, the names, or many times we don't know the stories of who these people are. Um, but for a Jewish person, when they read the genealogy of Jesus, at least some of these people would immediately bring to mind some familiar stories. And for the ancient world, a genealogy would have been more like a resume for us, right? For each place that you see the genealogy, there's certain uh, people that you would include, certain people that you would exclude. And so if you've put together a resume uh, at some point in your life or a CV, there may be portions of your work history that you leave out. Maybe they were really short stints or you lost your job or certain things that you did along the way that you're like, I don't think this will be important and it will gain me no traction. But this resume of Jesus' genealogy includes certain details, okay? There are certain people who are included and excluded. Maybe uh, if you're putting together a college application for the seniors in the room, there's going to be details over the last few years that you include and certain things that you exclude, okay? In Matthew chapter 1, this genealogy teaches us a few things, but I'm going to name at least two today, and then we're going to recount the things that are included over the next few weeks, Number one, uh, that Jesus' story happened in a certain particular place and time. That it is, this is history that's being recounted here. He doesn't start with once upon a time. This is not some fairy tale. It's within the context of history that, that Jesus' story unfolds with specific people who are named 
in history. So it's rooted in the context not only of history, but also of a family. Most of your own stories are rooted in the context of your own family in a specific place. And no matter how great or dysfunctional the family that you came from is or was, there's parts of the story that you might feel particularly proud of, particularly embarrassed by. Second thing that we learn about this is not only that it happened in history, but this uh, reveals certain things about the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's an including of names that maybe we would be tempted to admit. In a culture where men are only named traditionally in genealogies, there's at least five women included, okay? And we're going to name the four women that are included leading up to Mary, who's the the final, um, over the next few weeks. And we're going to skip Ruth, and here's the list of their names. This is kind of a sorority of grace and Jesus' genealogy, okay? First, you got Tamar, who we're going to look at today, who uh, has incest in her story. That's where we're going to look. And just next week, we're going to look at Rahab, who's a prostitute that helps God's people. Uh, and then the next one that's mentioned is Ruth, a Moabite woman who's included in God's lineage. And the last person is Bathsheba. Now, we're going to skip Ruth because we did a whole sermon series on the book of Ruth just a few weeks ago. I don't know if you remember, but it was actually 10 weeks ago. If you've slept since then, it's okay if you've forgotten. But we're going to uh, look at each of these stories. And I want to point out a few things that these women have in common. Number one, almost all of them are outsiders in some way or another. They didn't naturally belong within the genealogy of Jesus. All of these women are marginalized in some way or another. Three of them are taken advantage of by men, and that becomes part of the story of redemption in their life. All of these are stories that we, if they were our own stories, we would prefer to forget the portions of these stories that the Scripture remembers. God remembers the stories that we wish we could forget. And many times the stories that we wish we could forget become evidence of God's grace and redemption in our life. And so for some of you in this room, I want to acknowledge that there's stories that all of us walk into this room that we wish we could forget. That's either happened through us or to us that bring about shame or regret, victimhood, or perpetrators of some crime where you've forsaken someone in your life. The church... Now, as we look at this genealogy, one of my prayers is that the church would be the context of the gospel where these stories can be heard and unburdened. The people of God have this long history of people who needed to be redeemed, who had stories that needed to be rescued, that are no longer places of shame, but trophies of God's grace and victory. For each person, there's gems in the dark minds of our own history. And the first story that we're going to visit is the story of Judah and Tamar. Now, each person brings a question, and I want to ask you this question before we look at Tamar's story. What do you do with the history that you wish you could forget? What do you do with it? Because everyone's dealing with these stories of shame or regret or guilt or victimhood. And what you do with it matters. 
As we look at Tamar, we're just going to highlight these, this story in Genesis chapter 38, um, three pieces of her story, her plight, her plan that resembles Ruth's plan, where she goes and snatches a man, and then God's provision for her. So first, who is she? Um, it starts with Judah. Judah takes a wife who's a Canaanite woman. Let's look at Tamar's plight, first piece of the story. Who is she? Judah, who's a son of Israel, Jacob, he takes a wife for himself first, an Adulamite woman, which is basically a Canaanite. It was forbidden. He wasn't supposed to marry her. And he has three sons by this woman. The first one's name is Ur. second one's name is Onan. And the, sec- and the third one's name is Shelah. Okay? All three of them somehow get knit to the story of Tamar. First son, Judah takes a wife for him, for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. This is the first introduction to this woman who's mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Now, it seems like Tamar is part of an arranged marriage, which we would assume was pretty uh, common during this time. And Tamar is married to someone who's so terrible that God strikes him dead. The normal pattern of someone dying and living and having age and some point coming to death doesn't follow. Okay, In his life, he's wicked enough, and it's tantalizing that we don't know exactly why and how he's wicked. But it's apparent to those around him and obviously to God that this man's wicked enough for him to take him out. So he takes him out. God, a couple of things before we move forward. God is not indifferent towards sin, especially the sin around you that you feel affected by. He's not indifferent towards it. And he's willing to punish it. He's willing to redeem it and he's willing to punish it. And the only way for us to appreciate the redemption that we all have experienced if you belong to Jesus Christ is to also see that this is true about our God. That when he sees wickedness, he's not ignoring it or denying it and there is consequences for sin. So first story for for Tamar is that she's married to a very wicked husband. She becomes a widow of a wicked man. If you're in a relationship with somebody who's wicked or cruel, you might be wondering if God cares about it. You might be wondering if God sees, and here we see that with her first husband, he not only sees, but he's willing to give consequences. And now she gets married to her brother-in-law. Look look at verse 8. Judah then goes to his other son, Onan. This would have been a custom for the time for him to go to his brother and say, hey, now you need to take responsibility for the widow of my first son. And so he says, I want you to go and have a child with her so that his lineage would continue. Now, if you think this is weird, it kind of is, but it was customary for the time. So Onan uh, knew in verse 9 that the offspring would not be his, and so he went into his brother's wife. He would waste the semen on the ground so as to not give offspring to his brother. In In other words, he's refusing to take responsibility for his brother's wife. He's refusing to take responsibility for the people around him that God would have said, this is your responsibility now. You need to take care of her. And he's both greedy and refusing what God has called him to in this moment. And because of this... God sees it and punishes him. A couple of things before I look at that verse. Sexual gratification without moral obligation is the way of the world. It's the way of the world. It bears no resemblance to God and his people and his design for human flourishing within the sexuality in, in the context of marriage. So did God see this? Yes, he did. God's not blind to it. 
Here God shows up again and you see what he thinks in verse 10. Look at it, it's coming on the screen. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord and he put him to death also. So here's Judah. He's looking at the first two sons. He's going, I'm wondering if the problem is maybe this wife that I've gotten entangled with my boys and maybe she's like some kind of black widow or something but he makes this empty promise to Tamar in verse 11 Judah said to Tamar his daughter-in-law remain a widow in your father's house till Sheila that's his younger son apparently he's much younger so he's got two older sons he's got this younger son he's like I, I just hold on go back to your dad's house he'll take care of you in just a little while I'll give you my youngest son he's going to come and and uh will be responsible for you at that point But secretly, he feared that he would die like his brothers. Isn't this just like a father who's ignorant, right? They look at their own kids and can't see their sin. And he's like, it must be someone else's fault. You ever known a dad like that? Must be somebody else's fault. It can't possibly be my kids. And so Tamar did, as he said. She goes to her her father's house. Now, can you imagine this woman? Two terrible marriages to two worthless men, wicked brothers, both terrible. And who knows what kind of father this guy must have been, but he's the kind of father who makes an empty promise and then with no intentions of giving his third son to her, he's like, look, or no intentions of taking responsibility for the fault of his boys. He's saying, I want you to go back to your dad's house. And somehow he's missing the fact that possibly his boys are responsible and there may be worthless men. And before I move on to what happens next uh, with her plan, some of you may be coming into this room in the context of a terrible marriage. Some of you may be wondering if God sees. And if he does, if he's going to do nothing about it. Here's what I want you to know for every, and this is heavy, okay? Eventually, everyone is accountable to God. Every person. All of us will stand before him. So if you're the kind of woman where you find yourself in this kind of situation, I want you to know, number one, God sees all the things that you wish you could forget. He knows and he's just. If you're the kind of man who would not make provision for someone that you're responsible for, if you're the kind of man who would take advantage of someone who's more vulnerable than you, it says here that when God saw it, he saw it and said it was wicked. Know this, God is not blind. He does not sleep. Justice might be a long way off, but God's justice is inevitable. Men, if you're using someone and not making provision or protecting that person, this is wicked in the sight of God, and he sees. Trust that God is good in this, women. If, this is, if you're the victim of this, I want you to know you can get help. You can come to one of the elders and talk through this with us eventually God will bring about justice and he can use the church to bring it about what's she going to do how is Tamar going to survive with no son in the picture she's in a very vulnerable place And now, I don't know how long she's been wondering, but eventually she's been waiting in her father's house for the thirdborn son, and some time has passed, okay? During that waiting period, she's become suspicious that maybe Judah's promises to her were empty promises. 
And she's realized, and maybe he's thinking that I'm the one to blame, that all of his kids are dying. And in this moment, Tamar takes matters into her own hands, okay? So in summary, she's been waiting in her father's house for an empty promise of Judah to be fulfilled. Eventually, she gives up, and she hears word that Judah, her, father, his, her father-in-law, has a wife who's now dead. So his wife dies. He's a widower, and he's returning to work after a period of mourning, and he's taking his first work trip to go see the, the, um, the sheep that are being sheared. And somehow Tamar knew that Judah would be traveling along this road. And look at verse 13. This is her plan unfolding. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance of Enim. In other words, she takes off her widow clothes, puts on a veil that would cover her face so she wouldn't be wrapped, recognized. She wraps herself up. She sits at the entrance of the city where she knows that he's going and she knows he's going to be vulnerable. Verse 15, Judah sees her. It's going to be on the screen, I believe. Judah sees her and he, he thought she was a prostitute for she had covered her face. In other words, we find out that, that not only did he think that his daughter-in-law was a prostitute, but he thinks that she's some kind of cult prostitute. So Judah falls uh, victim to Tamar's plan. He didn't recognize her. He comes over. He solicits her thinking she's some kind of random prostitute. I'm going to summarize the story here, okay? (laughs) You're like, how quickly can he get through this story? I understand this is uncomfortable. And listen, when when I decided I would go through these women in Jesus' story, that was months ago. And this week I was having lots of second thoughts, okay? Lots of second thoughts. Here's Tamar. She says, what are you going to give me? Judah says, I'll send you a young goat a little later. She's like, what, do I have? what are you going to give me so that I know you're going to give me this goat? Now, she's, she's already suspect. You've already made some empty promises to me, dude. What are you going to give me? And she says, I need your signet cord and staff. In other words, this is the equivalent of give me your wallet, your keys, and your license, okay? <laughs> I'm going to hold on to them until you come back with a young goat. But her plan was not even to get the young goat. Something she knows that he's going to want and he's going to need, and it works. Eventually, he sends back his buddy, okay? So he goes, she conceives, and he sends back his Adulamite buddy, which is Canaanite friend. He says, I want you to take this young goat back to the cult prostitute at the gate. I want you to go back to her, and you need to get my wallet keys and my staff. Okay, wait, what was it? My signet, my cord, my staff. I need you to get those things for me. And he returns to Judah. He can't find her anyway. He's walking around the town going, hey, does anybody know where that cult prostitute is? My friend back home, he's looking for her. He's got this young goat for her. Now, in this moment, there's this growing tension of like, how many people need to know that I'm sending a young goat back to the prostitute? And in this moment, his friend comes back. Look at verse, it's going to be on the screen, verse 22. So he runs, returns to Judah and he says, I've not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, oh boy, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. See, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. In other words, I don't want to endure the embarrassing shame that's going to come. Just quick note, sin has a way of convincing us that there's not going to be consequences. And eventually the consequences catch up to the actions And the most grave consequences for him in this moment, he thinks that the gravest consequence is going to be that people laugh at him. 
He wants to keep the thing hidden. He wants to keep the shameful thing covered. His concern was not about the sin and his selfishness and his sin against God or against this woman. His concern was that he would be exposed. So here's Judah living with this unresolved thing in his life. And I want you to know that people that are living with shame, a lot of times it seeps out into shame for other people. They begin to try to make other people look bad. About three months later, Tamar shows up pregnant. Judah gets word that his daughter-in-law, the widow of his two sons, is pregnant immorally. Okay? Look at verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she's pregnant by immorality. Two times. This is sinful. This is wrong. Immorality. Verse 25. Sorry, verse, uh, uh, the next verse says, let's bring her out and burn her. His response to the immorality of someone else was far more harsh than how he had looked at his own sin. He's looking at someone else and saying, oh, we've got to just crucify her. Bring her out. Let her be burned. In other words, let's expose her and let's burn her. Look, this is just uh, colloquial. This is just Nathan here, not the Bible. Sometimes people with the greatest amount of shame will seek to shame others and expose them. They'll seek to crucify the sins that maybe they feel embarrassed about. And then, as everyone's on the edge of their seats, like this is, this is the moment in the movie where everyone's wondering what's going to happen. As she's being brought out, and I'm sure they're like holding her. She's like, hang on a second. Take these things to Judah. Ask him who they are. Verse 25, as she's being brought out, she, went, she sent word to her father-in-law and says, by the man whom these things belong, I am pregnant. She pulls out his wallet, keys, and license. And then says, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. And suddenly he's exposed. He didn't keep the promise that he'd made. He didn't make provision for this woman. And then in verse 26, Judah identified them and said, she's more righteous than I since I did not give her to my son, Sheila. And he did not know her again. I want to I, I just point out a few things about Judah as we continue to think about Tamar's plan kind of unfolding. Um, repentance a lot of times follows a pattern for us. The things that we're afraid to confess, usually it's about our fear of other people, the impressions that we'll make. And, and usually it follows this kind of pattern. It's going to be on the screen. And his doesn't get to the last thing. Number one, I'm really sorry I got caught. This is what he was revealing. He did not want to be laughed at in this moment. Other people are going to laugh at me. You go keep asking around with that goat. People are going to be, I'm going to be notorious for the wrong things. Then he says, even in this moment, he's saying, she's more righteous than I. Why? Because I didn't give her what I had promised her. I didn't, hand, I didn't give her my son. I'm sorry for the pain that I caused you. Ultimately, if we belong to Christ, 
it lands in this place where we're sorrowful that we hung Jesus on the tree for our sins. That when we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. But that forgiveness costs someone something much greater than any of the other damages that we've done. That the only innocent person who's ever lived hung on a tree in our place for our sins. And the gospel turns this upside down. It transforms us. And the more that we belong to Christ and our affections are for Him, when we sin, our ultimate sorrow is for putting Christ on the cross. That we know that when we sin, He hung on that tree for the sake of our shame and guilt. Then we're also sorry for the pain that we've caused others. And ultimately, the last thing that we're concerned about is our own name. This is how the gospel turns things upside down. Judah never seems to acknowledge the sin against God. Personally, he doesn't want to be the laughing stock. Socially, he sees that he caused someone else pain by his empty promises. But ultimately, he never seems to say, I violated God's law. He's willing to acknowledge someone else's sinful behavior as immorality, but not his own. It's only in comparison, right? He's not saying, I'm unrighteous before God. He's saying, she's better than me. She's doing better than me. Again, he's looking horizontally. Now, if today you come into this room and you can relate to these things because this is just human things. You may not want to be ashamed over things that you've done. You may not want to cause anyone else harm over sins that you've committed. But the invitation is that ultimately we see God himself as the king and the judge who sees and knows and is not dismissive of our sin. And he invites us to take it seriously and to plead the mercy of the cross. So that's part of what the community of faith is. That this is a place where we can come most vulnerably before one another and confess our sins, not only to God, but to one another. James says it this way, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Why? That you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Now, it may cost you socially, interpersonally, but knowing that Christ Jesus died for this sin is part of what we receive when we confess our sins to one another. That we make a regular practice of saying, I've failed the God of the universe in this, and I come to you as another high priest in Jesus to give me and extend to me the grace that we're all receiving from the throne. We don't ignore it, We come before one another and before God, acknowledging our need for redemption. Now, in the end, back to Tamar, she ends up victorious. Even though she uses deception, she's working as a shrewd serpent, I'd say, similar to the serpent, using the enemy's tactics for survival. And she not only survives, but she has twins. It's not a love story by any means. It's a story about survival of empty promises, broken promises, and an incredible 
it's incredible to me that God would include this story when he's putting together his resume of the king coming to inaugurate his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. That through a story like this, broken for sure, disappointing for sure, that God would make a provision through the likes of Tamar. So that through this story, we see this trophy of God's grace and triumph. This woman, several moments, her life seemed to be over. Two dead husbands sent to her father's house being brought out to be burned. Imagine everyone watching this unfold and then suddenly, redemption, God's provision for her. Verse 27 says this, when the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. Not just one child, two children. And in case you parents of little kids have have forgotten, that's a great, incredible provision from God, okay? He's given us this gift. And her story becomes a blessing. It's a reminder of God's people, to God's people, that God can take stories like this, great stories of redemption, in order to bless his people. In fact, I don't know if you remember this. It's been 12 weeks ago, so I didn't. Ruth, chapter 4, in the end, when all the women are celebrating over the baby that's being born, they say, May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give to you by this young woman. In other words, when people remembered Tamar's story, they spoke it as a blessing over those. They said, let your story be like that of Tamar, of God's great redemption. Look, God... He is about the business of making all things new. And the arrival of Jesus, the inauguration of his kingdom coming through Jesus reminds us that he's making these stories redeemed and he's promising us in the future that he's going to make all things new so that others would take the stories of redemption in each of our lives and they would become stories of blessing. May your story be like that of whomever. That eventually this lineage would bring this lineage would bring forth Jesus, a descendant of Abraham, the seed that would bless the nations, descendant of David, the seed that would sit enthroned forever. And so I want to ask you in closing today this question: what do you do with the history you would prefer to forget? What do you do with it? With the shame, the regret, the guilt, the things that you haven't dealt with? I want you to know. That the church, by God's grace, for his glory, is becoming a place where those burdens can be unburdened. My prayer for us is that the church would be the safe place for our stories to not only be known, but the gems and the dark minds of what's happened in our lives would be celebrated as evidence that God hasn't given up on his people. The coming of Jesus would inaugurate this kingdom that we would be radically honest about who we are as radical recipients of God's grace and radical distributors of the grace that we've received. Few things about this. Listen, God's grace in this story and in ours is far greater than the mess that we've made 
or the mess in our lives that other people have made, it's far greater than that. God's grace can overcome the effects of sin and shame and work out his purposes in the most unlikely situations. God keeps his promises in ways that you would not anticipate or write out the script for yourself. God's grace for you is far greater than the mess in you or around you. So in closing, in closing today, I want to read Romans 8, 28. This is God's good news for us. We know that those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray to that end. Lord, thank you for (laughs) this very interesting story in your word. Pray that you'd use it today as a reminder of your goodness, of your provision, of you working all things together for good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. Be glorified today as we turn our hearts towards communion and singing. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.